You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. This is Katana. She's got my back. She can cut all you in half with one sword stroke, just like mowing the lawn. I would advise not getting killed by her. Her sword traps the souls of its victims. Harley Quinn, nice to meet you. Love your perfume. What is that? The scent of death? Koroska. <laughs> Whoa, easy, cowgirl. Ain't that kind of a mission. Have a seat. She seems nice. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to all things geeky that don't have anything to do with Star Trek. So excited to see what we're going to talk about tonight. I, I, I'm just, my mind is blown. Uh, it's, ah, gosh, so much to talk about tonight. But before we do that, uh, I just want to remind everybody, of course, that uh, 602 Club is part of Trek FM. Love being here as part of Trek FM. You can find all the shows for Trek FM on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're actually a feature provider then, but and we're all over the place, like SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and Google Podcasts, and all over the place. Of course, we're on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We're on the Babel Conference, uh, which is our listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook, uh, or, of course, if you're on our website at Trek.fm, where we are online, Click discussion on the menu bar, and of course, I love getting voicemails from people, so send one in, speakpipe.com slash trekfm, that would be great, especially on our topic tonight, and I'm so glad to have back in the 602 Club, a man that I admire so much, a villain like none other, Tristan Riddell. It is so good to be back on the 602 Club, and I appreciate that introduction, and I, I, I admire and respect you as well. I, I love that I get to talk DC with you again, because I think the last time I was on 602 Club with DC's last release. It's true. It's true. Now, I, I, I got a couple questions for you, just uh, housekeeping DC measures before we dive into Suicide Squad, which we talked about. One, quick thought. Did you like the extended version of Batman v Superman? I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was great. I, uh, I, it was definitely the version that should have been released in, in theaters. Um, I know why they didn't, because it's harder to sell a three-hour movie than it is a two-and-a-half-hour movie uh, to theaters, because they want to pack in as many showings as they can throughout the day. And, um, but uh, good news is the, the girl, a.k.a. my wife, uh, she did not like Batman v Superman, and she was honest about it. Uh, but then when she saw the ultimate cut, she's like, yeah, that is a much better story. I mean, I don't think she was going to agree that it was a good movie, uh, I, but it definitely enhanced her enjoyment of the movie, which is saying something. Yeah, especially I, I know listening to y'all's show Nerd Nuptial where she hit it up. And so it sounds like it might be something she'd actually rewatch with you sometime mm -hmm. other than being in that place where like, I don't really want to watch that again. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> well, 
the only other question I had for you, because we've kind of had something big in the DC world come up, uh, and I know you're such a huge Batman fan. Mm-hmm. The Killing Joke, have you seen it yet? I have seen The Killing Joke, and uh, we spoke about it just a little bit. Actually, it's funny, uh, Nerd Nuptial just uh, did, uh, we just did our Suicide Squad review, and we opened up with our thoughts about The Killing Joke, and it was... Um, I tried not to spoil it because I just wanted to give I just wanted to give a few thoughts on it. But what did you think about it? Did you see it? Uh, my wife and I just watched it last night, and I do have to say I think we both liked it. I uh, I guess if I was going to give it some kind of rating so people would know where I'm coming from, out of five, it's probably like a three point two five, three point five maybe. Um, I I think it's good, but. It's not great, I don't think, um, and I'm not sure why, but it's a good retelling of the comic while adding some interesting elements, for sure. Yeah, I think for me, I, maybe maybe a three, maybe a three, and I, I think that's because there's something, like, once they got to the Killing Joke storyline, it felt like they were very faithful to the adaptation. I mean, very faithful to visually as well as writing-wise. But there was something that was lost in translation for me. And I cannot put it into words on what it was. I think it's the end. I think the end doesn't come off as ambiguous as it does the way that it's done on the printed page. You know, there's just something about the way that printed page comes off where I feel like you really are left with, did Batman kill him? Did he not kill him? What just happened? You know, I don't feel like you get that kind of feeling so much. So to me, that's where it was like you have that build up and then, you know, I don't know, for something on the printed page, it 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 works here. I just felt like it kind of falls a little bit flat. Yeah, I like uh, what happened was is that um, the girl has never read The Killing Joke. She hasn't read it yet. Uh, and we watched it. And then immediately after we watched it, I showed her uh, the graphic novel. And there was just something about like the it just feels like it jumps off the page. I mean, the the art is so beautiful and the, the, the layout is so classic. And it was just, I don't know, I just didn't get that feeling from, from the video. And also, I really didn't like the additions at the beginning. I didn't like what they did with um, Batgirl's character and how she interacted with Batman. I just... I was <laughs> I was quite upset with with what happened in the beginning, but I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it because it is different from the graphic novel. It is different. And I can completely understand kind of why they wanted to do that, because, I mean, The Killing Joke is a comic that is very much rooted in all the things that had come before. You know, it just doesn't happen out of thin air, and it's really small. You know, there's not a lot going on in there. So if you've never read a Batman comic or whatever, and you're just kind of picking this up, who Barbara Gordon is really doesn't jive with you, and what's happening to her doesn't have the same meat on the bone. Mm-hmm. And so I understand why they do it, but I, I just yeah. don't think it, you know, really works uh i'm with you yeah like they they, i know exactly why they did it and i think it was smart what they were trying to do because in the killing joke barbara gordon basically is just there to get shot that's all she's there for yes she's she's not really batgirl we don't see her as batgirl she doesn't even really have that have that many lines she has like one line before she gets shot and one line when she's in the hospital and in this in this video uh home release 
yeah, they have a much bigger storyline at the beginning where they show her as as Batgirl and show her go through some trials and tribulations, which I thought was good, but they made a lot of left turns, and I think they did not do justice to the to either character of Batgirl or Batman. Well, to wrap it up real quick, I'd got to say, um, watch the sneak preview that they had for their new animated film that's going to be coming out. I don't know if you saw it, but Justice League Dark is, looks really cool. They have that coming out. And they have Matt Ryan back, who was Constantine on the TV show, back as Constantine in the film. And uh, I think that's fantastic. Uh, you know, So I'm kind of excited to see them do that because they've never found themselves in that part of the DC universe yet. Mm-hmm. with these kind of films and I, I you know animation really leads to doing magic uh so i think this could be really fun yeah i know so little about justice league dark so i'll have to look that up well audience we are here to talk about suicide squad and i'm so excited and tristan i just i wanted to kind of um start as we always kind of do from the beginning because you know everybody goes into these movies with in some headspace and you know, this is definitely a different type of movie. Uh, it, it they're, they're not really heroes. And, you know, it's a different type of comic book movie where, you know, you're probably not going to get a lot of heroes because of that. You know, it, it, it's just a, a whole different world. So I kind of wanted to know what you were hoping for when you are going in. And um, I know some people probably know, but what's your familiarity with uh, Suicide Squads? And where did that kind of put your headspace as you walked into the theater with the girl? Well, with uh, I've had very little exposure to the Suicide Squad comics. I'm very familiar with these characters, but not necessarily the Suicide Squad comic itself. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm a big... I mean, anybody who's ever listened to uh, Nerd Nuptial knows that my wife and I are huge Harley Quinn fans. I mean, we have... I'm looking at a shelf right now that is completely dedicated to Harley Quinn... And, of course, I mean, you can't get any better than the Joker when it comes to villains. I mean, I think inside the world of Batman and outside of it. And um, I love Amanda Waller. I love how just villainous she is, but she wraps herself in righteousness at the same time. And it's just, you know, like so many of these characters, I I really wanted to see these characters on screen. I wanted to see Joker on screen again. Uh, Harley has never been on screen, so this was... an extremely great opportunity for for her to shine, and I wanted to see a uh, uh, Killer Croc, you know, like and and how they would interpret yeah, that character, because yeah. <laughs> like in the comic books, especially towards the um, I don't know if this was towards the end of uh, the last universe of being a, a fifty two, but Killer Croc basically came off as a dinosaur, like just like kind gigantic. of like a cross between like a. He's like a Gorn almost. It's kind yeah. of what he came off as, yeah. It's it's kind of weird, and so I was glad that they toned it down for the movie. With But anyway, Headspace beforehand. Um, and so, you know, like one thing that came out before uh, Suicide Squad, I think even before Suicide Squad was announced, or maybe at the same time, was a DC animated film. Uh, it was called Batman Assault on Arkham. Have you seen this? I haven't. I've got that one coming from Netflix, so I'm oh. really looking forward to seeing it. Oh, dude, it is fantastic. It's it's my favorite uh, DC animated film. We ju- I just watched it like 20 minutes ago again for like the third or fourth time. And it's about the Suicide Squad and the Suicide Squad. It, it, it has a lot of parallels. Assault on Arkham has a lot of parallels to the Suicide Squad movie. And you can tell that they drew a lot from that from that story. 
And it's the same setup like uh, Amanda Waller brings in the Suicide Squad. But the thing is, what they have to do is they have to go and break into Arkham and capture the MacGuffin and and then break out. But on their way, they see they um, see the Joker and they see Batman. And so both both Joker and Batman get in their way of them achieving their mission. And the kind of the leader of the team is Deadshot. And it's just... Oh, nice. It is so... Like, there's great action. Uh, there's great character motivation, great story. And it's just really funny, cool moments. It's, it, is, it is a fantastic film. And so I definitely recommend everybody who likes Suicide Squad or these characters to check it out. And so that's kind of where my headspace was. Like, when I saw Assault on Arkham, when we saw Assault on Arkham... And then we saw that Suicide Squad was coming out. And on top of that, that they got David Ayer to direct it. We're like, oh, cool. We're going to get Assault on Arkham, but in live action. And it's going to be a small, intimate movie, like a heist film or something like that. Like, that's what we thought that, you know, from the trailers. And, but then, um, sadly, we were not uh, protected by the negative reviews of Suicide Squad before we saw it. Because yeah. I was in Vegas when it was going on and everyone felt the need to message me and tweet me and, and, uh, and Which I did not, I, I want to say I was not a part of that group. I appreciate that because everyone's like, Oh, I heard it sucks. What do you think? And I'm like, well, I haven't seen it yet. So let me make my own opinion. And I, it was funny because I flew back from Vegas. I landed in Chicago at three 30. I ate dinner at five. We saw the movie at six 30. We podcasted about it at nine 30. And then I published nerd nuptial at 11. And it was a whirlwind of Suicide Squad and trying to get there. And so sadly, you know, like we were going into it realizing that it was not going to be what we were expecting or hoped. Um, and to be honest, overall, we were extremely disappointed. But there was a lot of great moments that entertained us in the movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think it does. You know, this is... Um... I have never really read Suicide Squad, but I'm familiar with a lot of these characters from reading other comics. And, strangely enough, I'm also familiar with them because uh, Amanda Waller, Katana, Deadshot, all of them have shown up, and Arrow. And so I have a, a real familiarity with mm. a lot of these characters, especially Amanda Waller, who, even though not played by Viola Davis in Arrow, is still wonderfully cold, you know, calculating, has everything under control, and never feels rattled, you know. So uh, the characterization is very similar and very well done. So I was excited about the film because I already have some familiarity with these characters and what they could do. And, you know, I thought it was a fun way to shake things up for the DCU in the first place, you know, coming off Man of Steel and Batman v Superman to do something that was really different. And I think to me that was where I was going into the film. And then, you know, I've, I saw the trailers and I thought they looked great and I thought it was going to be a lot of fun. And then, mm -hmm. uh, like you, that I didn't read any reviews, but I, I was aware of where the reviews were. You yeah, know, the reaction. That the reaction was not positive. Now, of course, my headspace is also in... Well, they were wrong about Batman v Superman, so at least to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm still going in hopeful, and and I I think I'm generally positive, and I've ended up <laughs> over the weekend seeing it three times uh, with different people, and my rating actually went up instead of down. 
as I saw it. So, okay. you know, that was uh, that was an interesting thing because I didn't expect that to happen either. Um, I just started at a certain place and it went up from there. So how much would you say it went up? Uh, it went up half a star. OK, so, you know, like it wasn't like an amazing thing. It just went from one place to the next. Uh, so it, it wasn't like I went up like three stars or something. Um, one of the things I think for me I was most interested in in this movie because I, I beforehand there were a lot of rumors when it would take place. This is kind of going to be a, a prequel to things. It was going to be mm-hmm. a sequel to things. But what I was most interested in, when I, especially the first time I saw it, where this movie ended up fitting in the DCU and how it connected. And to me, that was really fascinating. And, and, and I thought probably one of the strongest elements that they had going in the film, especially as kind of a foundation for why this story was quote unquote necessary. Because, you know, the, the whole idea that this movie comes after Batman v Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world has lost its Superman. And now the fear uh, that we get with uh, the government, realizing the the fortuitous nature of who Superman was, and Amanda Waller even says he shared our values. Mm-hmm. You know, the next Superman probably won't. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do about that? I just, I really liked the way that they used, you know, the previous movie to you uh, as a foundation for what we get here i just thought that was really really smart i think like i agree with you that the that foundation is great i think i i I thought that was a very interesting take especially it's a very amanda waller uh stance to take and i thought it was very true to her character and i thought it was very i mean like in a current day government that is exactly what we would be thinking is like we were lucky that Superman was raised by Americans. What if there's another Superman that doesn't share American values or something to that effect? And I, you know, like so, there would definitely be plans put into to place to counteract a future Superman. But the thing is, where I feel like it was a great concept. I think it was a it was a it was the right concept for the wrong movie. I feel like that is a concept that Amanda Waller could put forth on a, either a group or an individual that was not connected to the Suicide Squad. I don't know if I understand. Explain. Okay, here you go. I get, we'll, we'll jump ahead a little bit. So here's the, here's the thing that I think... Uh, this, this is the thing that bothered me the most, is I was on a roller coaster at the beginning of the movie. I thought it was funny. I thought it was um, catchy. I thought it was well-written. I thought it was engaging. And I was I was laughing. There were moments when I was grabbing the girl's hand out of excitement because of the things that were happening on the screen. And then I felt like it got less so in um, Act 2 and then started to fall apart in Act 3. And I feel like the Suicide Squad is supposed to be about bad guys doing bad things for the right reasons. And... In this movie, we had bad guys doing the right things for the right reasons, and it they ended up saving the world. But the thing is, the reason why you have the Suicide Squad is for plausible deniability. And when you you know when you have an apocalyptic event, you don't need plausible deniability. You need the Justice League, and 
in order to set up something to counteract the Superman, that's definitely not Harley Quinn and Captain Boomerang. No, I, I kind of understand what you're saying. But I also do think, and, and this is where I would, I would push back and I would say, that's what makes this really interesting, is that this is kind of like the Anti-Justice League, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because uh, they are definitely, even though they end up doing the right things for mostly the right reasons, they also are all still trying to figure out a way to escape. They're also tr- still trying to get what's best for them out of this deal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not doing it totally altruistically. The only character I feel like who even sort of approaches that but still not there is Deadshot. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, I, I felt like what made this smart is that it is a great bridge to Justice League and especially with the cameo at the very end with Bruce Wayne and Amanda Waller, it means something when he says, you should shut it down. Mm-hmm. We'll do it for you. But the Justice League isn't there yet. Right. There isn't even a Justice League. I mean, none of these characters know each other. There isn't that time. So I, I felt like this was a great way to be able to introduce these characters, move the DCU forward, and at the same time, uh, set us up, I think, for... And, and I hate to say this, but I think it would be an even better obviously better movie with Suicide Squad 2 just because I think they're going to really push that to that point where these characters try to take more advantage of their situation, uh, move it into that area. I think the hard part is, is that when you do a movie with bad guys... They can only be so bad or nobody really wants to watch them. And I think that's probably the balance they're trying to strike. And if they get it right or they don't get it right in that movie, uh, I'm not quite sure if they completely get it right, mm-hmm. you know. But I I just like the foundation enough. And I thought it made enough sense of where we are in the DCU, especially if they're using this as a sequel to Batman v Superman and not some kind of prequel to everything that we've seen before because i also really like the way that they used batman in the movie i love how they used batman yeah because it feels like a comic book you know um you know how in a comic book a character will just show up for a few panels and then they're gone that's exactly what this felt like uh but at the same time it also felt like a batman who had grown from batman v superman you know, he's not putting the hammer down on Deadshot in front of his daughter. He's he's going to take him out as quickly and effectively as possible and then appeal to his humanity to say, I don't want to do this in front of your kid. You know, like, and, and then he that, handcuffs him. And that epic hero shot when he drops down in the alley. Yes, it's very yes. Batman 89, you know, like where like he has his cape completely out and then mm-hmm. just boom. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah, that voice and it was awesome. And then when he dives in for Harley too, I thought that was really awesome. You know, it just yeah. full on hero shot. But what was great is that f- for the first time ever, Batman's in a movie where he's not the main character and he's only in it for what, probably a two minutes at most. I think they, they definitely used him wisely because the moments with Batman were some of the most interesting. I mean, like how he interacted with Deadshot, how he interacted with Harley. I mean, that scene where Bats is on top of the Lamborghini 
and Harley gets her gun out and said, Bats, you're ruining date night and starts yes. shooting <laughs> up in the, in the in the roof. It's hysterical. It's amazing. It is Harley Quinn. It is the Joker and Harley of the comics with Batman on top. It's 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 so true. Th- there that's the thing, is that like even if I was disappointed in the direction that they took in the third act, there were so many moments like that where you're like, holy crap, these are these characters. The this is the comic. And yeah, it, it's just it was very cool. I would say this might be the most comic book movie of comic book movies. It feels like a comic because of all of those kind of moments where they're doing those things that you do in a comic book. You have characters drop in, they go out, you know, it it feels so comic booky. And I'll even argue, I think, that the end of the film with as big and brash as it gets, it, that's very comic booky too. And so... I'd have to argue that maybe Sin City or Watchmen would probably be more comic booky than this one. Well, and and what I mean is, is that, again, I feel like this is the first time, you know, I hate doing this, but compare it to some of the Marvel films where the, where the, and and I'm not bashing them, I'm just saying this, uh, the early films, the connective tissue for those movies was like Coulson. You know, the connective tissue here is Batman and the Joker, you know, we're talking, and, and, and Flash. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was an amazing cameo. I was so glad that wasn't spoiled for me. It was brilliant. I mean, so that's what I'm saying. Like the connective tissue here is your big guns, not just like some side character that kind of doesn't really matter. You know, we're really comic booking it up by having it feel just like a comic book does where you turn the page in Suicide Squad and Batman's there for that page. Yeah. You know, you turn the page and, and Flash is there for that page and then he's gone. I th- I just think those things were really really cool, and this was what was so awesome about it too. The fact that Amanda Waller uses Batman to do mm-hmm. her dirty work, that was classic Amanda Waller. Like, yeah, I my mind kind of blew at that moment. I just gave her the right tip to this right guy in Gotham, and you're like, oh wow, she can control Batman. That's <laughs> uh, whoo, that's good stuff. Yeah, I I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more repercussions from that. I know we saw it at the end, but I I really wanted to see Batman get pissed at Waller, not necessarily Bruce Wayne. You know what I mean? Yeah, it would have been kind of cool to have her have a scene where Batman shows up behind her like he does in the comics, you like, know? Like very much to give like her a talking uh, Daniel Craig's Bond showing up in M's apartment. You know, exactly. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. That, yes, that could have been really, really awesome. So yeah, I think setting the stage that way is just a really cool thing. Let's talk about this Motley crew, and I know for you, the huge draw for you guys, you and the girl, was the Joker, Harley Quinn, Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about them first because they kind of go together like bad peas in a pod. Uh, and so what did you think about uh, what they do with those two characters, how they're portrayed? Um, there's been a lot made of Harley and all that kind of stuff. But what did you guys think? Hands down, best thing about the movie. Hands down. These two characters together is what we've been wanting is what what everybody's been wanting who are fans of Harley Quinn and the Joker. 
they have a messed up relationship that is that is damaged, that is hurtful, that is abusive, but yet codependency much? Codependency, but it, it works for them. And I'm not it's this it, this is a relationship that should not be glorified, but it is a relationship that is fascinating. And that's the, there's a difference between the two. Is that by finding this relationship entertaining or fascinating does not mean it should be an ideal to strive for. And I think that's the uh, something that people are having a hard time uh, with a disconnect. And I, anybody I, going into this film thinking, you know what, who my new relationship alter is going to be, my new relationship idol to put up there, <laughs> it's going to be the supervillains of Harley Quinn and the Joker. Yeah, you sh- like you know what, talk to your mom and dad before you start having that uh that urge to I- idolize their their relationship. It's a uh, yeah. I think that's that's where the, definitely where the problem is, is because this like even though Harley Quinn is a very strong character, it took her a long time to become strong and independent. In the comic books, she left Joker and realized that this was an abusive relationship and realizes that she needed to be on, uh, on her own. And now she has her own comic and it's fantastic. And she is no longer with the Joker, but we're not there yet. That hasn't happened yet. This is the first time we've seen Harley Quinn on on screen. And so, yeah, of course she's going to be with Joker. She's going to be with Joker for a while before she moves on and realizes that all he wants to do is damage her. But with that aside, the two were incredibly entertaining. I felt like uh, I, th- I felt the Joker scenes were definitely lacking. Oh my gosh! I mean, like you, there, there needed to be a whole lot more Joker, and it was so sad because I know this. This is just how movies are made, you know. Like when you see the trailer, you, you're almost every single trailer you see, you're gonna see stuff that doesn't end up in the movie, or might see alternative takes. But there was so much Joker stuff that they teased in the trailers that was not in the final cut, and some of the scenes between Joker and Harley were incredibly truncated. Like you could tell stuff was cut out. And I and I hate that. That was one of my that was one that, that was one thing that I was I was actually kind of disappointed in was the editing of this of this movie was there were scenes that you could tell were cut short and a good editor won't let you feel like there's something missing from that scene. And I felt like a the most times that that was obvious was the Joker and Harley scenes, but at the same time, those were the most entertaining scenes. It's it was weird. All that chit chat's gonna get you hurt. Um, what did you think about uh, Jared uh, Leto's portrayal? Um, that's a great question, and uh, I've been talking to good friend John Mills about this, and I think it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I think the reason it is phenomenal is because. And it's funny, I'm walking out of the theater with my wife. She's never read the comics. She's like, he just felt more like the comics to me. Like, she could even feel it. That He feels more like that. I mean, I have to say, you know, as scary as Heath Ledger's Joker is, I feel like this guy is off the wall, scares the out of me. You know, like, because you have no idea what this guy's going to do. He's clearly psychotic. He clearly has no compulsion about doing anything um and honestly i the scariest scene was the scene where he and the people were making fun of where he's laying with all those weapons laid out and everything but all of that stuff laid out i don't know if you caught it but oh i did like baby <laughs> there was onesies uh jumpers yeah, yeah. onesies i'm like 
I get the feeling like this dude's killed babies and liked it. And that's, to me, like this kind of psychotic evil Mm -hmm. is it makes your skin crawl. You know, and then, of course, as you were talking about with his relationship with Harley, like the whole thing is just sick and twisted and codependent on both sides in the worst ways. I mean, but there's this kind of weird thing where these two people have some kind of love for each other. And I thought mm-hmm. that was most, most interesting about Jared Leto's Joker is that Joker's never loved Harley. At least, uh, especially, he didn't love her in the animated series uh, where she was created. And the fact that he has some kind of twisted something for her, that he would actually go back and get her, that's not the Joker we've seen before. So even the Joker seems to have some kind of weakness that he hasn't had. And I think that makes him a fascinating thing to watch. So Jared Leto as a person seems whack, but... Jared Leto as the Joker seems kind of perfect. I yeah i i don't I don't think I would say that I'm. How do I put this? I think with his interpretation, I feel like I need to see more of it to really get a a, a solid opinion on it. I like it. I think it's great. From what I saw, I think it's great. But I think we need to see more before we can start comparing him to others. Um, because well, let me say, I'm I I just do want to say I'm not saying it's better oh. than Heath Ledger's Joker. Please don't hear that. Oh, even there, even I if you I, thought that was, that's fine. That's your yeah. opinion. You can if you want to. But I and I don't think they're necessarily comparable because I do think that these two are different interpretations yeah. of a character who's had so many different interpretations, as we just talked about before. Killing Joke, a very different Joker than we had seen in a lot of other iterations over you know, 60-some-odd years the Joker's been around. So I, I think this is a great new interpretation. And like you said, it made me want to see more. You yeah. know, I want I, I definitely want more Harley, and I definitely want more Joker so far. So out of the movie with the Suicide Squad, you know, I, I've already got some characters that I, I'm chomping at the bit kind of to see on screen again. Yeah, I love the kingpin godfather angle that they were taking with Joker. I love that he has this this henchman who is the public face of Joker Co. You know, and yeah. I just <laughs> it's 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 fascinating because we've never seen that on screen before. And even though it's a different interpretation than the comics, it felt more like the comic Joker. It, it's this weird. This entire movie is a weird dichotomy where. Certain things are very interesting in different takes, but yet feels like the comics. But yeah, like in I, I don't want to I don't want to overblow it though because I did have my reservations with how they treated the characters. Right. Right. Um, but I felt well, like, and I think yeah. Go ahead. What's interesting is that you've got John Ostrander on your side as well. Uh, the creator of the Suicide Squad talked about the movie. He said he really liked this film. And he said the same thing as you did. It really, these characters aren't quite what I created, but that's not the point. Yeah. And he liked the interpretations that these kids, he's like, it's not my dead shot. It's right. not Gail Simone's dead shot. It's, it's not any of these other people's dead, but that doesn't matter. It still felt right to him. And I think that's what you're saying is there yeah. was something intrinsic about the portrayals and what they did for the most part, not completely, but it just felt right. I, th- I think that's spot on, and I'm glad you quoted him on that, because that, that's exactly how I feel. Do I feel like the story did not treat the characters right? Yes. 
but do I feel like the characters themselves were appropriate for their personas? Also, yes. Viola Davis, I think, uh, deserves a lot of credit for the portrayal of this film and that she gives Amanda Waller. And what I think kind of is most interesting is watching her be what I like to think of as the true villain. You know, she's the one who's pulling all these strings. She doesn't care about these people. She doesn't care about anyone, it really seems like, for the most part, other than herself and the safety, I guess, of the entire United States, but actual individual people as she doesn't really care about, but as a group, I guess she does. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to watch in this movie as they put this kind of, as you said, she wraps herself in self-righteousness mm-hmm. uh, character up against some of these bad guys and how they seemed more heroic than her. And I thought that was a nice dichotomy. And I, I, they could have done more with that. I think it would have been better if the themes had been played out even more so. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I like where they started. And I think that gives us, again, a good jumping off point for, say, a, you know, Suicide Squad 2 to continue that theme and really dig into it even more. Uh, here it's hard because you are trying to introduce everybody You've got two hours to tell the story. I, I, I really feel like this movie should have probably been about two hours, 15 minutes, just to give us an extra 10 minutes to tell some character story stuff. Uh, and I think part of that could have been really digging in just a little bit more into the Amanda Waller character in relation to all the other characters. I like how you put that because I, I felt the same way about Amanda Waller. I, I love where they started. I, I, I love it as a jumping off point. Because I was with her for a long time of the film. I was just like, yeah, like, you know, get it done. You're a fascinating character. But up until they started to rescue her, that's when I started to lose it with the character. Like when she shot her own people, which felt felt like, and not just because like that's the wrong thing to do, but I felt like from a character standpoint and from a movie standpoint, the only reason why they had her do that was because there was a lack of bad actions. There was a lack of violence for the sake of violence, because they they publicize this movie as get ready for the bad guys, the bad guys doing bad things in a bad movie, but yet they weren't really bad guys, they weren't really doing bad things, and so you have Amanda Waller, who is the who is the true uh, dual antagonist, and so they have her do this truly evil thing because you haven't actually seen any evil things done yet, and so it felt unnecessary, it felt plopped in there because there was something lacking. And then after that, I felt like her character just kind of tumbled down and and was her interactions with Enchant just got weird. But she's a great character, fascinating. They they started, I feel like I'm going to repeat this throughout the podcast. They started off great with these characters and then just kind of went bleh. I want to ask you as a, a kind of like a side note to that. Do you think that the movie had more of that kind of stuff, especially at the beginning where you kind of saw some of the evilness these characters did and the studio got worried about it being too dark and had some of those things cut out because I I feel like that's where air goes in this film Mm -hmm. you know when you think of his other movies like Fury and things like that he's not afraid to show the dark side of humanity yeah and it almost felt like to me that the studio got scared 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the thing is that when I heard that David Ayer was going to be a part of this film, was going to be directing this film, I got super excited because the the man made Training Day and Fury. These are small, intimate movies that explore the darker side of humanity, but also at the same time, what brings us together. And so I, I thought, man, this guy is perfect for Suicide Squad. That is exactly what you need for Suicide Squad. And so... For the longest time from the trailers, I was jazzed and thought that's what we were going to get. But then the Comic-Con trailer came out and I started getting worried because I saw more of Enchantress. I saw some of those gooey-eyed individuals that Harley Quinn was fighting. And then I saw the inevitable blue um, beam into the sky. And I was like, oh, damn. Like, this isn't going to be a small film at all. They're going to literally save the world. And I felt like that's too big. That's too big for Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad should be small, should be intimate, should be directed. It should be like a heist movie. And I, what, like to, to answer your question, I feel like that's probably what David Ayer intended to do. And they probably forced him to do something bigger at the end. But then he, you know, met them halfway. And but then they saw it and realized that they had a much darker movie, a much smaller movie. And then the reaction to Batman v Superman happened and they're like, no, you need to make it bigger. You need to make it um, lighter and you, you need to turn it into Ghostbusters in the third act. And I was so disappointed because I have never watched a film where I felt like, wow, there is a completely different film out there. And you know, like, yeah, I've seen films where you know that there's reshoots and that there's individual scenes that have been taken out or moments that have been taken out. But I've never seen a film where so many scenes felt so truncated where I felt like half the moments were missing, if that makes sense. No, I think it does. No, and I, I agree with you. I think there there are um, two places where I think the film really was changed. To me... The main one was probably the very beginning of the movie. Uh, I had read online, and I think this this sounds so true, is that the movie started off with a nice prologue of what happened to June Moon. Okay. And her experience being turned into Enchantress. And my guess is the movie started off with that and then kind of snowballed into the collecting of all of these malcontents Mm -hmm. and part of that would have been some darker things that we saw them doing to really kind of you know get get a darker feel we're really picking the worst the worst here and i think it it felt like they said nope we're gonna start this movie with uh will smith and margot robbie and then we're going to make this funnier and I, I liked the introductions. I thought it was a great way mm-hmm. to introduce all the characters. But it would definitely had a lighter tone to it than you might expect. Um, I, I would have expected a lot more, I guess, a dark humor. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I think that's probably the one, the beginning really felt like that. And then the other scene that jumped out at me, especially my third time viewing the film, was uh, the elevator scene with uh, Margot. That is an insert shot right there. I would bet money on it because they are in that building. The mood has gotten darker. 
And then all of a sudden she's in the elevator. The music's pumping again for mm-hmm. no good reason. And it's just there for her to like look cute, beat some guys up, and text Joker. But the scene doesn't really fit the mood that had just been set and then the mood you go into. Yeah. And so it just feels like that was just an insert scene. So it's... It, um. Yeah, yeah. To, I, I to jump off that, yeah. it, I think it. That's the thing is that it felt like a very inconsistent movie. It felt like a movie made by committee, and from these reports, that's kind of what it was. It it felt like a camel where everyone had a say on what to put in. If the editor, if the editing rumors are true, where they hired the trailer house to re-edit the film, that's insane, and it, like it, they had super expensive reshoots. And it just it just felt like patched together, and it's 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 so weird because the the op- like the opening started with a specific style. There was a very specific style of music, editing, graphics, and uh, and story that they abandoned halfway through the film. It was almost like they had one director for Act One, and then that director had some help in Act Two. And then the main actor, the main director left for act three and then left this new guy all on his own. Does that make sense? Yeah, I kind of, I don't feel it. it's that bad, but I can see what you're saying. And I I think if we're saying anything to DC, DC, we love you, Mm -hmm. but you said that you were going to do this thing where you let directors do their thing. So let's pony up. Yep. And do that. Uh, David Ayer deserves an apology from you guys, and he deserves to be able to do Suicide Squad 2 his way. Right. Uh, And I think you will find that people will respond more to that because I don't think anybody was going into Suicide Squad. If you had a brain in your head, you weren't going to this film thinking, this film needs to be fun and light and airy. It's Suicide Squad. We're talking super villains. These are the worst of the worst. This is not, yeah, it can be funny, but we're going to be talking like gallows humor and, you know, uh, lots of dark humor. We're not, you know, this is not Avengers. Right. You know, this is the anti-Avengers. So, you know, but hey, this is one film we can't blame on Jai Courtney for being bad because he was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, Boomerang Boomerang was fun. I think they, they used him just enough. Uh you know, like, you know, with talking about Diablo, Killer Croc, Katana, and Slipknot, I feel like, even though Boomerang was funny, you know, like, you need you need Deadshot, you need Harley Quinn, you need Flag, you need Waller, Boomerang is that interesting comic relief, but I know that you're not going to like to hear this, <laughs> but I, I do not think in this, in this troupe, like, if you wanted to spend more time on individual characters, you should have nixed Diablo, Killer Croc, and Katana. I, I know you're not going to agree with me. I, 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 and that's, this is just an opinion. I'm not saying this is not live or die for me. Like, I like that Slipknot was there to die because they needed to prove that their heads were going to explode. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. only there for like five seconds. Right, and I know, I know you like Katana, and I like Katana too, but I feel like she would have been better served... Um, Later on, I I just say this. Um, I think Croc and Boomerang are kind of just there to be introduced and to have a few funny lines 
and that's what they're there for, and that's okay. You know, did uh, not Croc everybody really has have to be... that many funny lines though? Because I, they, I think he was, that, I think it was that, they wasted that actor. They absolutely wasted that actor. They could have gotten anybody to be in that suit, and I'm not just talking about. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not saying like, oh, we shouldn't cover up great actors with makeup. That's that's horse crap. I don't, I don't think about that at all. It's if you're gonna get a great actor like Adelaide, I can't, I cannot pronounce his name. Um, that's okay. <laughs> I like if you're gonna get a great actor like the man who played Killer Croc, uh, use him. You know, like let him be funny, let him be interesting. But yet they just got a guy in a suit who said like maybe three lines, and they were mainly monosyllabic. I guess um, going into, let's just put it this way, going into these kind of films, I know that there are going to be the characters who don't, aren't as upfront. Mm-hmm. Even Avengers, there, there is, you, I mean, what the heck did Hawkeye do? Uh, you know, so uh, I'm just saying, there. Are, uh, anytime you have a, a group film like this, especially when you're just getting introduced to everyone, not everybody's going to, this isn't going to be their film. No, no. So... And you know, it shouldn't I, be. I, right. So that's why, you know, I don't really have a problem with Killer Croc not having a ton to do. I don't have a problem with Boomerang being anything other than some comic relief, which he was great at. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jai Courtney brought a lot of vitality to the role. Very funny. And I, I want to see some more of him uh, because of that. So that's great. Uh, Katana, to me, was the standout. And I don't know why, but I just, I love her character. I love the way she was played. What we got made me want more of her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, Diablo, to me, is the heart of the movie. And if you cut him out, I think that you have a real problem. Because to me, what and what I liked is that he is the one character here. He's the only one that actually doesn't want to be here and doesn't want to be a bad guy anymore because of what he's done. Mm-hmm. And unlike everybody else here, he's done things that he does consider horrible and he wishes he can take back. None of the other people here wish they could take stuff back. you know. And I thought that was really, really interesting, mainly because we can just kind of dive into it, this idea of the shades of badness mm-hmm. and... That conversation that he has with Harley, I thought to me was a linchpin for this movie. And it was really interesting because he's saying that, you know, I murdered my wife and my kids because I couldn't control my anger because I was selfish and cruel and I just wanted power and money and that fueled my rage and my my own devil powers. And I lost everything I cared about. And she says that, horrible line to him own it Mm -hmm. and like her advice is the advice you get from the world Uh, who's anybody to say that's bad Mm -hmm. you're a villain be a villain villains don't have families and stuff own it be a what's wrong with being a villain be who you are embrace who you are and that's not what he wants I, i just thought the what's being said there and the whole thing was just fascinating to me and i wish it had been expounded upon instead of the small bit that we get because i think that was a real key to the film and if they had done more of it if that i feel like that scene in the bar was very short Mm -hmm. and you could tell there was a lot more to it 
And that needed to be the entire crux of the movie because the foundation of you know losing Superman is is one cornerstone. I feel like this bar scene was the other cornerstone for all of these anti-heroes. Well, see, the, I, it's really interesting that you say that because I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying, but yet the bar scene was my least favorite scene for everything that you were saying because... This You could tell that this was written originally to be the crux of the movie, that this was supposed to be here to be a defining moment for Diablo and a defining moment for everybody else. But the reason why it pissed me off so much is because you could tell what they were trying to achieve, but it fell so hard on its face. It's just... It, 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 they, did not have t they did not put enough time and effort into these characters coming together as a quote-unquote family. Like when Diablo, after the bar scene, says, I already lost one family. I'm not going to lose this one. That's fake. It's not even forced. It's a lie. It's, they did not earn that line whatsoever. It, like when you watch this movie, you feel like they've been together for what, maybe an hour or two? And all of a sudden, they're just like, they're together and they're uniting and they're, they're, they're supporting one another and they're devoted to one another and they're using words like family. No, that's, that's horse crap. That, that is not true. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I guess I'm just giving them more credit and, and that's okay. Um, I, you know me, <laughs> I'm the character guy and I'm the theme guy. And if I like their themes and I like the characters, I'm going to forgive the movie a lot. That's just my personality. It's, 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 fun. yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Like, I think like through our friendship, I've noticed that, that you, you are very forgiving when it comes to people who are like when movies and, and filmmakers are trying to achieve a theme. And even if they fall short, you recognize that the theme is there. Right. And, and I mean, even I love this, that scene because when Hara, when Boomerang says to her, why is it, it's always a knife fight when you open your mouth. You're pretty on the outside, but you're ugly on the inside. Mm -hmm. When she says we're all ugly mm -hmm. on the inside, like that's another, that's a, that's meta. She's, she's saying something insane there to yeah. this world. Like we're talking like total depravity, Calvinism. I mean, she's saying something very big there. To me, that strikes me because anytime a character says something like that in a film, they're acknowledging something really powerful. And I just, yeah, I agree with you that it could have been better. It needed to be better. And it would have been better if, if the film, and I, I, will, I will say this too, the film just needed to be David Ayer's film yeah. and nobody else's. And you can tell that it's not. And I feel bad for the guy. It, it's, it's just, unfortunately, it's not a... It, it's not. I yeah. I would have liked. I would have liked that scene a whole lot more if there was more build up to it because it felt so tonally different from the rest of the movie. It felt like it was made at a different time by a different company with different uh, actors almost because I felt like all the characters were playing it so differently from the rest of the, the of their characters in the movie that that it that's why the whole scene felt like a lie to me is that even though like if you put this scene in another movie i probably would have loved it more if you if you had more focus on it and more and more build and more reasoning behind their actions but these the actors were portraying it differently it was shot differently it was written differently it was just totally different from everything else in the movie and that's why it felt stuck out like a sore thumb to me yeah no and i i mean just to be meta for 
Warner Brothers here. I do think that this is the reason that Jeff Johns was just named the head of their film department mm-hmm. for DC because I think they want that guy who can be there and to say, <laughs> this is the way it needs to be. Yeah. And for him to be the guy that's that's working with the filmmaker because he knows the comics and and it not be some studio head who doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. So crossing my fingers that that means good things forward. And, uh, you know, from what we see in Wonder Woman and uh, <laughs> Justice League so far, looks pretty cool. I, I wanted to ask you this before we touch on production because I think the production is pretty interesting. That idea at the very end of the film about leverage and blackmail against friendship, mm-hmm. I thought that's an interesting uh, theme going forward. You know, as Bruce is somebody who doesn't like people, <laughs> he's kind of an antisocial guy himself, mm-hmm. but to have him be somebody who's slowly believing in friendship, whereas Amanda Waller is basically the old Bruce Wayne, I thought that was really interesting to watch that play out at the very end of the film. And it's a great, to me, it was a fantastic teaser. Uh, you know, that that was a great end credit scene. Yeah, I think... I think I, I stick by what I said earlier. I think I I think you're right. It is a it is a key scene. It's a great scene moving forward where it was a nice teaser for setup that didn't obstruct the movie. Like the uh I think the mm-hmm. like the Wonder mm-hmm. Woman scene in uh Batman v Superman when like when she was on the computer looking at all the emails and video and everything like that. That felt forced and in the way even though it was interesting to diehard fans because we want to see those characters it felt forced and in the way. This one didn't feel forced in a way. This felt like a natural progression. Uh, but I would have enjoyed it more if it was the Dark Knight making these threats and not Bruce Wayne. And maybe he was taking the files by force from her apartment or from her, you know, wherever. I, I see what you're saying, but I think that thematically for Bruce Wayne and Batman, he's slowly becoming more the character that we know from the comics who's more the upright Batman Mm -hmm. than the one that you got in Batman v Superman. I think that's part of his storyline. I was, and that's what I was so interested in seeing that relationship between Batman and Bruce Wayne as they kind of slowly redeem themselves back to being somebody who's more in the light, Mm -hmm. you know, than being the guy who would just go take what he wants you know, so to me, it it worked with where they're. I feel like moving that character, even though yes, it would have been kind of fun if it had been Batman. Right, 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 Just, right, right. I get yeah. you. I, I hear so, that. I hear you. So it, this movie has a lot of uh, needle drops. <laughs> it's got a lot of music in it, and um, you know, we're introducing characters and costumes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I wanted to hear what you just kind of thought of all of that and how that worked for you. Obviously, I know you, you know the ending didn't really work for you, mm-hmm. but did uh, were there anything else about the music or production or anything like that that you enjoyed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, at first my knee jerk reaction to the music was, "Oh, this is invasive. This is weird. This is out of place." Because they would play really bombastic music uh, with lyrics underneath dialogue scenes, and so I was like, "This is weird. This is this is this is distracting." But then I started getting used to it and I started getting into it. And I was like, okay, this is fun. Like, it's like each character has their own theme music 
you know, like as they're like, like if you if if a character could pick their own theme, that's basically what you heard. Some people have criticized it as as it's too on the nose. I like it. I think it's fun. Uh, I did not like the score. I felt like oh, interesting. Yeah, I I I, I felt the score was pretty lacklux lackluster. I did enjoy the score during Deadshot's hero mo- moment. Um, mm-hmm. I did yeah, like that. Yeah, that's kind of the Suicide Squad theme that they created, yeah. and I actually really liked it. Yeah, I, I liked that, but I think the rest of it was very forgettable, uh, in my opinion. But I liked the music integration of the popular popular music and everything like that. And uh, when it comes to like uh, production design and costumes and everything like that, I felt like all the costumes were spot on. I don't, I still don't really dig on Harley's look. Um, I, I, it's, it's a little, I don't know. It's just so different from everything else that we've seen before in the comics and maybe not modern Harley, but, uh, I want you to, it was nice though, that they had her in the onesie for a couple of scenes. Yes. Oh, that was mind blowing. You know, so they at least reference it and they had her in it. So it was like, what wonderful, beautiful fan service. I absolutely loved that when they had Harley in her original costume, they were referencing that very famous work by Alex Ross where uh, the Joker is in a tux and he's dancing with Harley in what looks like almost this uh, uh, this vinyl or latex outfit mm-hmm. with a black background. Yeah. It's it's you, it, we all know which which work I'm I'm talking about, and it was so amazing to see that on screen, and it was such a surprise. It was so gratifying. Um, but I, I want you to watch Assault on Arkham. I think that would have been a great costume for her to wear in this movie because it wasn't um, as quote unquote hokey as the uh, animated series costume, but yet you could tell that it was inspired by the animated series costume, but still was a little bit more revealing, which would have been appealing on film and everything like that. So I really am interested to see what you think of that. Oh, definitely. And and what I, I thought about these costumes, I thought they all looked really good. They were great interpretations of the character. Deadshot uh, was pretty much spot on for a lot of the comics. Uh, I loved Katana's outfit and the way yeah. they interpreted, interpreted that. Um, what I thought about Harley's costume was really interesting is that it's almost like she, because she opens that up, you know, and you can tell that she's just kind of a connoisseur of whacked out clothing. Mm-hmm. And it's just what she feels like wearing. Yeah. You know? And so what was great is that I doubt that this will be the look that she'll have in the next film that she's in. You know, she's just a person who just chooses what she wants to wear that day. And, you know, so I, I thought that this was a, a great look. Obviously, it looks great on Margot Robbie, but, um, it, it fit the character here, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of where they go with that character next. You know, I thought what was neat and nice is that the world building and the production uh, was really good. Uh, I mm-hmm. liked the design and the look of things like uh, Bell Reeve Prison. Uh, I liked the look and design of the Midway City that they were in. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was interesting use of just one of the DC cities that's out there. And... Uh, I, I liked the just the look of all the characters. I didn't even really have a problem with the brother that they're fighting and Diablo fighting just because it's like supernatural stuff and I don't need it to look super realistic because who knows what that stuff looks like anyway. Yeah, I, I and the music was great. So I, I actually enjoyed the score and I enjoyed all of the popular music that we got because it was almost like 
not only was that character's theme song, it just felt like that was the music they were hearing in their heads. Yeah. And they're all psychotic, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, w- yeah. And like when, when you know, since we're talking about production, I think we do need to talk about the CGI. I, uh, I mean, yes, it's not great. No, it's it's really not. And but that's the thing, though, is that if you had a great movie with bad CGI, you would still have a great movie with bad CGI. But I feel like with some people, because the CGI just started getting worse and worse as as the movie was going on. Because you could tell that they were running out of money and they were running out of time. I think it impacted the feeling of this movie is going downhill. And I I didn't mind. Like, that's the thing is that like bad CGI or just mediocre CGI is not going to ruin a movie for me. It's just I'm just going to go, oh, I wish that was better. And then I'm going to move on, which I feel like most people should. Um, but c'est la vie. Uh, but the thing is, though, since you referenced Brother and Diablo... I, I hated that part, but not because of the CGI look, but just because I felt like it was so unnecessary. I, I, I was, I mean, we didn't really talk about this and we don't need to get into this, but because this will, this will take another hour to discuss, but I thought Enchantress, uh, brother and, uh, the powers that they gave Diablo were the absolute worst move for this film. I felt like it, the choosing Enchant- Enchantress as the antagonist was the absolute 100% wrong move. She has no business being in this movie. And as as I referenced before, that's why this movie felt like Ghostbusters in the third act. I I see what you're saying. I don't completely agree. Um, I don't mind her as the villain. uh, Or I put that in quotes, villain. Yeah. I don't know if it was the complete right villain for this, but what I liked, uh, just real quickly, what I liked about her and her brother was that it was very self-explanatory. You know, it, it makes sense in your brain. So for any average person, you don't need a lot of explanation for a supernatural spirit who's been around for 6,000 years and is used to being worshipped, having a vendetta against humans that don't want to worship them anymore. Mm-hmm. Very simple and self-explanatory. Uh, it, it doesn't take a lot uh more than that. And that's what you got in the film, and I felt like that worked. I think that that probably would have been a better villain in Justice League Dark. You know? Yes. Uh, yes. Very so much so. I, I don't have a problem with the concept or anything like that, uh, any of that stuff. I just don't know if it was the exact right villain for this film. I think it's because you don't send Harley Quinn to battle Enchantress. And she's yeah, the one who ultimately it, it, ended up defeating right, Enchantress. Right, right. Which I, I, you know, it it kind of made for this. It kind of made for this really interesting thing because she can see into people's minds. And I feel like Harley's so schizophrenic that as she's bowing down and she's saying, "You know, I, I like what you're selling here, lady." Uh, you know, it, she's believing it in her mind. Yeah. You know, like that's that was the cool thing and. Uh, so there were some interesting stuff that happens. It's just not, we put it this way, it's just not perfect. It's just not, it's just not as great as it could have been. I think mm-hmm. that's what we're both saying. That's where we came down is that we were frustrated on. Um, I do want to give the man his due. We didn't talk at all about Will Smith as Deadshot. And I feel oh like my gosh, yeah. we would be remiss if we ended this podcast without talking about how great it is to have Will Smith, Big Willie style back. Yeah, very much so because there was definitely like scenes and there were parts where 
you felt like you saw Will Smith again. You know, like that's the thing is that like like um it yeah, Will, Will Smith has very much kind of gone up and down in his career lately. Like uh, we haven't really seen a Will Smith hit in a long time. And sadly, this is not the movie for him to get that hit. But I feel like we saw that it's spark. It's his best opening in a long time, so. Well, I mean, oh, yeah, that definitely, yeah, uh, financial-wise. But I, well, I, and I, I, think, I, I think his portrayal in the role is winning him praise. Yes, whether or not as it people should. love the movie. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like, that's the thing is that, like, we saw that spark, that younger Will Smith spark in this movie, especially when he was, um, like, listing the conditions of how, when he was, like, how, why he was going to help these people. And he was talking to Flag, but he was really talking to Waller. Like that was pure Will Smith right there, and that's why he was perfect in this role. And um, I, I feel like he was, although he was not immune to the downside of the latter half of the second act and the third act itself. Like I feel like all of the characters kind of dwindled down, and and sadly, even the the charisma of Will Smith couldn't save that. But he, I think he did a fantastic job, and he did a better job than I expected. I think one of the things about this movie was that the casting, as in all of these DC movies, has been fantastic. All of the characters here, whether they were used to the best of their ability or not, the actor playing them was not the problem. That is That was wonderful. And so I was very glad to see that. Will Smith, I think, with Margot Robbie, does steal the movie for the most part. Mm-hmm. Hands down, they're the best part. It reminds me a lot of what people talked about with Batman v Superman. Well, really like Wonder Woman and Batman, uh, you know. So there are some really great things, and 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 I think that there's a lot that you can build on here to create something really special. Mm-hmm. And Will Smith was one of those. Uh, I I actually, to me, I love the scene where he's staring into the storefront window, the nice little Watchmen reference there with the smiley face. And uh, he sees the jacket that's very reminiscent of what his daughter wears. And mm-hmm. he has that moment. And it's it's a great show-me-don't-tell-me moment of you've seen the scene with him and his daughter. Now he's looking at this. He's seen what's happening in this world. And it begins to really continue to move, move that seed that they've planted in him that there's i i there's something bigger going on here it's not just about me and i don't want this world to end my daughter lives in it you know like that's a great motivation he might not be a good guy all the way cuz even at the end he's talking to his daughter about hypotenuses and how to kill somebody just right you know from the you know like he's not he's not a good guy but there is some goodness in him, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the way he played the scene. Uh, just again, I, I really think he did a great job. So, uh, so for you, my good friend, uh, where does this rate? You know, on a scale of one to ten, one to five, uh, what do you think? Well, I feel like a four star rating or a five star rating is a little too narrow for me, because if I gave you my answer, it would sound like I was being too harsh. With uh, on a scale of ten, I don't. I still don't think you're gonna like my answer because the reason why I have this answer is because even though there were moments inside that I thoroughly enjoyed, I mean, 
the mo the the moments that I've enjoyed the most out of the entire new DCEU has been in Suicide Squad. Like I got giddy, I geeked out, you know, like I I wanted to point at the screen and go, "Oh my god." You know, like those moments didn't happen in in um Man of Steel. Uh they happened maybe a few times in Batman v Superman, but they happened a lot in Suicide Squad. So for that reason, I want to give it its props in that realm. But this movie felt from a from a from a technical standpoint, from a story standpoint, and a writing standpoint, this movie felt so disjointed. It felt so cobbled together that if we got the movie, if we got consistency of the movie that was established in the first act, I feel like this would have been a much better movie. Alternatively, if David Ayer was given control that WB likes to say that they give control to their directors, I think this would have been a much better movie. And so with that said, I think 26 out of 100 is way too low, but my range would probably be around 40 to 45 on a 100 scale. And so like a like a, a four or four So where it 5. is on Metacritic. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, exactly, yeah, I, Metacritic score. Now, if I, I will watch this again, and, you know, like, even Star Trek to, Into Darkness, when I walked out of the theater, like, you know, so I was just angry. I, when I watched it a second time and my disappointments were already known to me, I was able to sit back and enjoy the film more. And so I feel like maybe my rating will go up, but that's, I, I feel like, I, I don't, I don't want to give it, I, at the same time, I want to give it a credit, but I don't, also don't want to give it too much credit because... I think the characters were a lot of fun and a lot of great moments, but yet the story was so lacking. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like I could enjoy it more later on, but I don't know if the rating is going to go up. Does that make sense? No, I, I can understand that. I think it's helpful for you that there were those real squee moments, you know, geek fandom moments yeah. for you that you really enjoyed. And I think that'll probably, in the end, help you to continue to watch this movie every once in a while and be like, yeah, you know, um, it'll never be one you love, but you already have an affinity for it that helps in that. So, no, I, I get it. And, you know, I never want anybody to be any but anything but honest on the show. So, yeah, you know, for me, uh, I will say that the first time I watched the movie, I gave it a three and a half out of five on Letterboxd. And by the second time and the third time I watched the movie, it was a four. Okay. And for me, the reason was is because I the characters really grew on me in those subsequent watchings and all the little things they were doing and the ways they were introducing these characters. And to me, in an introductory picture for any superhero, whether it's a single superhero or a group of them, I want to want to come back for more of the characters. Okay. And so with the characters that I'm left with of Deadshot, Harley Quinn, you know, Rick Flag, Killer Croc, Boomerang, and Katana, yeah, I, I want more of that. Yeah. I, yeah. I want more of those characters. Uh, so, uh, and of course, Amanda Waller. To me, that's a win. Uh, if I want to come back for a sequel and I want to see more of them. And uh, I found rewatchability. I liked it and I enjoyed kind of trying to parse out more of the themes. 
My rating, though, does fully admit that this film needed to and should have been always David Ayer's film, and the studio should have butted out and let him just do his thing. And this movie would have been a five out of five, probably. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, my four star rating is being a little generous. So, just take that, get it, and you all know my reasons. You've heard the whole show, yeah. and you understand where I'm coming from. Um, so, I, I think we were very fair to uh, Suicide Squad. Uh, we were fair and balanced, and so I'm so glad that you were here to to join me, Tristan. It's been a lot of fun because we had a great conversation. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, we both love DC so much, so my fingers are still totally crossed. I have nothing but high hopes for Wonder Woman, Justice League, Flash, Aquaman, all the rest. And, of course, got news out that they might be uh, activating a Man of Steel 2. So uh, they that they put that back into active development. Mm-hmm. So if that's true, along with you know a Batman film that we already know they're working on, the sky's the limit, you know. And um, when I put myself back in the mindset of being back at the beginning of Marvel, and their third film was Iron Man two, and I came out of that kind of like ugh, you know, like it makes me feel better. Yeah, because it's like it takes a while to get things right. You know, it's like putting together a basketball team or any kind of team. Usually you're not going to get, you're not going to get lightning in a bottle first time. That just, it doesn't usually happen. So they're still trying to figure some things out. And I think they've got, uh, I think they're getting together that team. So I'm excited about that. I'm really excited though, that we got to talk about this. I love my associate producers here on the 602 Club, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. I really appreciate all of their support. Through Patreon, we're a listener-supported network here at Trek FM. I can't do this without you guys, so find out how you can support the network on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. We love you guys for your support. Thank you so much for all that you do for the network. And if you'd love to help make sure all the content that we've got coming to you keeps coming, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. And Tristan, before we go, I just wanted to announce our winner of our review contest that we have been doing on iTunes. I'm so excited to be able to do this. We had some great new reviews. We had some wonderful things said about us. And our winner of the Batman v Superman Ultimate Edition digitally is Will Mize there from iTunes. Thank you so much, Will. Really appreciate your review. Uh, I just want to read it to you guys. It was a really nice review and it meant the world to me when I read it. I'm not a podcast guy. I don't listen to a great deal of them, and those that I do, I rarely listen to every episode, as most are hit and miss, with the emphasis on the miss. My time is important to me, and I want to make the best use of it. The 602 Club is a wonderful exception to the above. I listen to every episode, and each one is a winner, no matter what your special brand of fandom is. Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, DC, Bond, Uncle, Harry Potter, whatever. Host Matthew Rushing takes the time to examine both the positive and critical angles for the subject at hand, and his choice of guests mirrors both the enthusiasm and the irritation for what they are talking about. No matter what flavor of fandom you're all about, the 602 Club can serve it up, piping hot via a great discussion that will leave you wanting more. Use your time wisely and listen. 
Thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate that. That means so much to us. Uh, contact me at trek.fm slash contact. Choose the 602 Club there and uh, let me know your address so I can get you your prize of Batman v Superman digitally. Tristan, man, I love you, brother. Thank you so much for doing this for me. I'm, I'm so glad that after, you know, you talked about this with the girl, you still had more to talk about. And that's kind of what I thought was exciting. Like, even though you'd already talked about it, you still wanted to talk more about it. But um, you've got some amazing places that you are online where people can catch up with you and listen to you. So where can everybody find you? Well, you can find me uh, on the Trek FM network as well on To The Journey, a Star Trek Voyager podcast that I host with Charlene Schmidt. And you can also find me on the Nerd Party network at thenerdparty.com where we have several shows for your listening pleasure. And uh, I'm on two of the three where there's one called The Senate Floor, which is a general geek podcast. And uh, I'm also on a show called Nerd Nuptial, which you've heard us reference a couple times throughout this this podcast that is a show that I host with my wife. So if you'd like to hear our combined views of Suicide Squad, you should go back and listen to Grape... Uh, it's I believe it's called Chilled Grape Soda. And also, uh, you can find Aggressive Negotiations on the Nerd Party Network. Well, of course, you can find me all over the place here on the network. I'm doing The Orb with Chris Jones. I'm doing Literary Treks with Dan and Bruce, talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Uh, also, of course, interviewing the authors when we get an opportunity. Uh, and uh, I do a little show on that Nerd Party Network with my good friend, my good buddy, my brother from another mother, or my Jedi from another mother, <laughs> John Mills, and... Uh, Aggressive Negotiations. It's the most fun you can have with Star Wars for about 30 minutes each week. So make sure you check that out. And um, yeah, uh, I'm also uh, got my own blog, 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. But all I got to say is thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear?